Welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You, a podcast and podcast show that brings you leadership lessons, knowledge, experience, and wisdom from hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. I am your host, Ashutosh Karg, and today I'm delighted to welcome a very, very accomplished individual from California, Dr. Deepa Prahlad. Deepa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Deepa is uh, an author and innovation consultant. She's co-authored uh, the book, Predictable Mag- Magic, Unleash the Power of Design, a Strategy to Transform Your Business. She writes for the Harvard Business Review. She's been elected a member of the International Academy of Management, and she's been ranked number 34 on the inaugural Thinkers 50 India list. That's a, quite an amazing set of achievements you have, Deepa. <laughs> So let's start talking about uh, your author and innovation consultant role to start with. Help me understand the role of an innovation consultant and do share some examples or anecdotes if you have any. Absolutely. I mean, quite simply, I think what an innovation consultant really helps organizations and in the case of entrepreneurs, maybe individuals do is really bring their ideas to life. Generally, there's lots of data, lots of research, or sometimes just very strong passion and hunches. Um, And then there's also a lot of unanswered questions. You know, exactly how do I do this? What are the tweaks? What are the details? And there's always this process of learning and experimentation. Um, And I think that an innovation consultant just really helps shepherd that process along. Mm. And I think um, it's relevant even if you're trying to do any kind of social change, NGO. So, I mean, I think my first direct experience was Mm. um, soon after I graduated from business school, I was with a medical software startup Mm -hmm. and we were actually trying to reduce um, errors in prescription behavior. And it was a really fascinating time because we were a small team and everyone had to do everything. And you're, you're continuously um, learning from feedback that you get. Mm-hmm. And we actually ended up realizing that the people who were more most interested, uh, customers mm-hmm. were different, the needs were different. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it was a great fun process and fortunately a successful exit. So <laughs> it, it was a really fun um, learning period. But I, I think in general, you know, lots of people have tons of, of, of data and it's mm-hmm. really that process of synthesis that's incredibly challenging, but also the most rewarding ultimately. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you mentioned just now that you were with a medical startup. Um, what made you move out of, you know, being an entrepreneur to becoming an innovation consultant? That was, you know, a fun short-lived stint after business school. But I think um, there's a few things. The real fortunate uh, part of my upbringing is that we were able to travel mm-hmm. quite a bit um, at an early age. And so that real love of learning from different cultures mm. and and different ideas, different ways of thinking was always there. And mm. I always was raised in an academic setting as well. So really mm. enjoyed that intellectual sparring and exchange of ideas mm. and trying to understand how to take kind of different views of the world and create something that works for everybody. And mm. I think innovation really at its heart is similar. It's, it's a mm. process of synthesis And, you know, today when you're trying to create something new, there's always inherent contradictions, right? Right. I mean, people want healthy food that also tastes good and they want sustainable luxury goods. And there's a lot of 
um, you know, tensions that need to be resolved. Mm -hmm. And that's really the fun of the whole thing. I, mm -hmm. I enjoy that process. Mm -hmm. So uh, what you're then saying is that when it comes to innovation, there could also be a contradiction. There generally is a contradiction, mm -hmm. actually. Um, you know, you're trying to create some kind of brand, which mm -hmm. is an exclusive identity. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, in many cases, trying to promote inclusion, like mm -hmm. in technology or, you know, in many different fields. Mm -hmm. um, so there, there are always inherent contradictions. And what good innovation really does is it, it synthesizes those to an extent and it actually makes us able to resolve some of that. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's uh, the kind of exciting part of the whole process. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I was reading about you, you also work on design and strategy. Uh, tell me about the work you do and how are these connected? I think this is a really uh, a place where the view of design and strategy has evolved quite significantly. I think my favorite quote is uh, from somebody named Mariana Lopez, who said, mm -hmm. design is the formal response to a strategic question. Okay. So it used to be that people would kind of look at design as, as an aesthetic element, mm -hmm. or maybe a marketing aspect um, of whatever product or service. And today, I think there's a very different view. I think that your intent or your purpose statement of strategy is kind of the what we want to do. And design is really the how. Um, you know, what form does that take? How is it brought into some tangible product or service? Mm -hmm. And I think from the consumer point of view, design is really kind of how people judge your execution capability mm -hmm. as a firm, right? And so this is the, the fun part of it. Um, mm -hmm. I think IDO and other firms have done a tremendous service of saying, mm -hmm. well, design isn't really something we bring out at the end when all the uh, kind of processes are known and we look for the package, mm -hmm. but really design is now increasingly be, being brought into, how do we define um, the problem itself, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not, well, I, I have all this high level thinking and then design is this um, afterthought. Now mm -hmm. it's actually at the forefront and I think it's really when you look at firms like Apple, mm -hmm. you know, 10 years ago that brought the potential of design mm -hmm. to wider public um, view of saying, well, it's not just the technology, it's not the features, it's not all of these descriptions, but what is the actual experience? How can that be such a driver mm. of your profits and your loyalty and your engagement? And you saw the, you know, um, effects of that across industries. Mm. Well, I want to be the apple of my industry. Mm. Well said, well said. So, you know, again, what goes into developing a good growth strategy? Um, and help me understand this uh, with an example. Well, I think hopefully there's a need <laughs> or a desire, a latent desire, at least for whatever you're doing. I think sure. All of these elements of market sizing, of um, you know, understanding consumer needs, incredibly important. None of those really go away. I mm -hmm. think the often overlooked element in a winning growth strategy is mm -hmm. this idea of emotional connection. Right. That is really what spells out often the difference between the many, many products that actually have good quality and a good price point and nevertheless mm -hmm. fail to meet even internally driven metrics and the few that really 
succeed. And there's a few reasons for that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, emotional connection where people are highly engaged, highly invested in what you're doing is one of the very few sources of advantage that actually grows over mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there are a lot of studies. There's a famous book called Firms of Endearment by Jagdish Shaith and mm -hmm. David Wolf and Brad Sisodia, where they really said, let's not try to go and look at superior stock returns and distill the practices of these mm -hmm. companies. Mm -hmm. Let's do it the opposite way. Let's look at companies people love and understand what their results end up being. And what they found is that really like 3x um, returns you know, over 10 years and pretty much even year on, you know, in the first early years. Mm. So it's a kind of interesting finding, but also emotional engagement is what allows certain companies to co-create with their mm. customers, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I may use a lot of things, but I'm not going to devote my time to helping every brand I engage with find okay. solutions or mm. answer important questions. So mm. Those are really important um, ideas and, and the narrative around what you do is, is critical as well. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So my next question is that, you know, when you look at strategy, traditional strategy calls for rigorous analysis and critical thinking, um, while design thinking espouses thinking by doing. Uh, help me understand how this works. And if there, if any, if there's any, is there any conflict or contradiction? I actually think both are highly necessary. I think Roger Martin was, you know, famous for saying, you know, strategists don't need to understand designers better mm -hmm. in the future. They need to become designers. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think the two actually work increasingly in tandem for a simple reason mm -hmm. that a lot of the issues that companies are being asked to weigh in on today, mm -hmm. like sustainability or inequality, those are things that are outside the capabilities generally of any one single mm -hmm. firm, mm -hmm. right? So we have to combine a lot of different skills, a lot of different communities in order to get anywhere. Mm -hmm. And there also isn't anybody who has an answer, regardless of the amount of resources they command, right? right? These are not issues that will be, ever be resolved by debate. They're going mm -hmm. to have to be discovered through experimentation. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's like what works, um, so you need to do a lot of this iteration and mm. testing. Um, and, you know, the vaccine is <laughs> a classic example where, well, mm. a lot of people had to uh, combine their capabilities. It's, right. it's really not um, purely analysis driven or purely observation. We have mm. to really combine the two and, and put a very explicit attention on access as well. Well said, well said. So my next question is that what are the building blocks of good design? Well, I think people talk about empathy mm. a lot. And I think that probably a lot of that emphasis is simply because we have had this amazing IT revolution. Mm -hmm. And there is big data for the first time between you know, rich and poor, that there's mm. data for everybody, which mm. wasn't there before. But it's still really about where... Um, where you look and and what you are trying to do. And I think the, the problem is that a lot of pure um, data analysis and stuff tends to skew your views and attention toward people with extreme views, not necessarily people with extreme needs. <laughs> and so you have to really um, be very inclusive in the approach. So I think that that empathy is um, 
incredibly important because mm -hmm. increasingly that is also what determines the trust that a lot of brands are able to have as well, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of companies today, mm -hmm. the backlash is not really about the quality of their products or services. I think the old advice was always when you're choosing friends, look at how they treat the waiters. And I think a lot of people today are implicitly looking at this idea of mm. that's what is being asked of companies too. How are you treating your workers? Mm. How are you treating employees? Um, people are interested in looking under the hood. Mm -hmm. So I think that that element is something that, you know, people are going to have to focus on a lot and, mm. and the narrative too. Mm. Um, what are you trying to achieve? Because by definition, any innovator can't succeed 100% of the time. Correct. So people who have the luxury of having an audience with them when they're doing round two and round three, it's because people trust and believe in what you're trying to do. Correct. They they feel you have good intentions. Interesting. Um, and my next question is that what is the connection between innovation and inclusion? This is something that exists on so many levels. Mm -hmm. um, and really it doesn't matter how simple the product or how complex it is. So mm -hmm. something as mundane as a set of crayons, mm -hmm. right? I mean, when I was a kid, flesh tone was one color. Mm -hmm. And today, even a brand like Crayola, now they have colors of the world. They have sets of eight different skin tones and now mm. 24 different skin tones. So mm. even in a very simple product that hasn't fundamentally changed very much, that idea becomes a part of how they talk. And so I think that a lot of these little details are exactly what gives people validation, a sense of self-worth mm. um, throughout. And if you look at technology and financial inclusion, for example, mm. now we see that those ideas really can actually the, the gap can widen or decrease very quickly based on how we design products and services. So today you can see, you know, a Bailpuri guy taking a digital payment mm -hmm. and having access to a financial um, system and mm -hmm. microfinance, all of these things were created. So mm -hmm. I always say that that's should give everyone confidence that they can make a difference, <laughs> you know, because okay. we've seen all of these things happen before our eyes in the last uh, 20 years. Mm -hmm. And I think this is like a huge issue today because there are points in time when you know up front there will be a gap. Like looking at the coronavirus vaccine, yeah. the people who are the most vulnerable are older. Mm -hmm. But for health and safety reasons, those appointments were made digitally. Mm -hmm. So you know up front that there's a gap between maybe the skill set and the confidence to use tech for those mm -hmm. things and the people who need it the most. So there was an explicit conversation at the outset on how do we bridge the gap. But a lot of things, not necessarily with malice, end up being created based on who can afford them. And backpedaling and backfilling is a very painful process often, and a lot of people don't have energy for it. Mm. So inclusion at an early stage is a really, really powerful growth strategy, which you touched on earlier, mm. and mm. also a way to make sure that your brand has longevity. Very interesting. So before I move to uh, some questions for you personally, I also wanted to ask you, that you know, you're an elected member of the International Academy of Management. Tell me a little bit about this. 
and the kind of work yeah, so that you it's, it's a gathering i mean i am still uh, very honored and <laughs> a little surprised to be part of that group but i think they have also changed their focus to say what can business do mm -hmm. to really create a better world i it, it's not a simple discussion on you know issues of interest um mm. anymore they have chosen to really focus on these issues of how can business really do more for human mm. welfare mm. and i think that's actually a really um i must of course they were doing that before but they've chosen to really focus on these real issues of how do you deal with inequality how do you make sure that sustainability comes into the equation mm -hmm. and that's a, a fun uh, discussion to be part of and i think they're really looking at what kind of leadership do you need what do business schools need to be doing differently as well wonderful and uh, you're also part of the uh, thinkers 50 india list uh, tell me a little bit about this list and uh, you know where is this thinkers 50 list and how you know how were you invited that was a surprise as well and they do a different list every two years so mm -hmm. i was on the first list <laughs> that was the that was the time i made the appearance mm -hmm. um but they they basically um take a a look at different fields and um that was the year my my book came out it was around mm -hmm. that time um mm -hmm. a year or two later and so i think there was a lot of of press coverage around that so wonderful um i was and you know your response gives me an interesting segue to my next question which is your book so Uh, you know talk to me about your book your hypothesis for writing the book yes yeah, so my co-author and i i think that was actually such a wonderful experience because mm -hmm. that was at a time it's about 10 years ago that we mm -hmm. uh, wrote the book but at the time a lot of people were getting really fascinated with what design could do mm -hmm. and it was really kind of at that place where people heard a lot of the anecdotal mm -hmm. things but that wasn't something that anybody had who had gone through business school or executives were trained to do and we're our basic premise was that this is a teachable process mm -hmm. and that a lot of design isn't about finding this perfect color and texture what good design does is it makes people feel good about themselves it mm -hmm. creates this emotional connection mm -hmm. and then you reinforce that with the narrative around your product or service mm -hmm. and what good design isn't really about finding this one um look per se it's really mm. about having a very good self reinforcing fit between your narrative and mm. your product itself so if you say you care about usability and you care about people make it actually usable and accessible mm. to everybody right um so i think that that's what we really said is like there has to be this fit between what is promised and what's delivered mm. and um and that can happen in any category in any price point mm. and then how do you create that engagement because it's not possible especially for an uh, an entrepreneur you can't be the one touting the virtues of your product or service okay. all the time right other people have to be doing it for you with the same enthusiasm mm. um that hopefully people inside are as well terrific so i've got time for two or three more questions uh, you know and i call these personal questions because my guests my viewers and listeners love to get to know my guest a little better uh let me start by asking you deepa what are or what would you say are three key milestones in your life or your career so far 
Well, I think one of them was really my first job out of college. I studied, um, you know, uh, political science and economics. And I was very interested in development. And mm-hmm. my first job was in Singapore, where I was a commodities trader. Mm-hmm. And I had a chance to travel around uh, all over Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. And I think that was such a pivotal moment because I was here in the US and um, I was trying to decide whether I wanted to go to business school later. And I remember always overhearing these conversations in the US about how, well, there's underrepresentation of women in banking mm-hmm. and the culture doesn't allow it. And, and in Asia, banking at most levels was dominated by women and they had this different narrative of saying, well, of course, this is the perfect fit because women are detail oriented Mm -hmm. and they already manage the budgets at home. And it was a lot of things like that that really made me understand Mm -hmm. how much you can, as a leader, craft a narrative to open doors or to keep them closed. And Mm -hmm. that's really stayed with me. So Mm -hmm. I think um, that that was one learning. And I think the second is just, like I said, being in a startup where you mm-hmm. have to really just juggle all hats um, has, has really informed a lot, mm-hmm. help out a lot of social entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually think that the bar for design is much higher when you're trying mm-hmm. to do something for people with very few resources because there mm-hmm. aren't a lot of choices and they have no room for error. Right. You're not going to have early adopters um, who are barely surviving, right? You mm-hmm. have to be crystal clear at what you're offering. So I think um, that was one. And I think to write um, and, you know, everything I've written since then, we're just like, you have to kind of pull yourself back from that academic background of trying to show that, you know, while I have this huge command of the field and really focus on what is useful to somebody like what is going to allow them Mm. to implement and understand this well enough because if people can't understand your message there's no hope (laughs) that you can have an impact Mm. and that people implement what you're talking about so trying to make it so simple that people feel that confidence to go forward and try something different Mm. uh that that was uh, a really fun journey as well very interesting so deepa i've got time for one more question i've started to debate what to ask you but let me ask you a question on failure you know i've often said this uh, and i have a book on failure that parents in south asia or southeast asia or even east asia don't teach children it's okay to fail we're always taught come first in class, go to head of the line, et cetera, et cetera. And yet we fail, we learn, we keep moving on. My question to you is what have been your learnings from some of your mistakes? Just keep going. What else are you gonna do, right? And I think invest in that time in relationships with family and friends because they'll help you um, get through it. And, you know, hopefully it'll become a funny story soon enough. Mm -hmm. Um, because at the end of the day, if you want to do something that even ends up being very impactful later on, Mm -hmm. there will always be intense critiques at the early stages. Mm -hmm. So even if you're not actually a failure, you can often be made to feel like a failure. Mm -hmm. So I think two things is one is be clear about what you were trying to do and why you were trying to do it. Usually the mistakes you end up feeling really badly about that don't turn into learning experiences are things that you were doing to fit in or to feel like you were living out somebody else's expectations. Mm -hmm. 
if it came from a place of this was important to me, you tend to learn enough mm-hmm. and you tend to build enough trust that you're sticking around for, you know, a, a second try. Mm. So I think that's how I look at it. And, you know, at the end of the day, you can be the smartest person. Sometimes life throws you obstacles. And there again, I think that being a trusted voice and always trying to support others along the way is what lifts you up when those things inevitably happen. Very well said. Uh, Deepon, on that note, uh, thank you so much for speaking to me. Thank you for speaking to me about uh, innovation, about strategy, about design, about linkages between these amazing topics. Thank you for speaking to me about your book, some of your thoughts on each of these subjects. And thank you for sharing with me a little bit about your journey. Thank you and good luck. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website www.tbcy.in to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for the brand called you.